This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Christina Sweeney-Baird, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. Do you know, um, Zoom has changed our life. In the past, pre-COVID, we only recorded podcasts with people that came into the office. And a month before COVID, we built a quiet room, a silent room to, you know, soundproof our recordings. And I think we've used it once (laughs) because people stopped coming (laughs) and we went on to Zoom. But I mean, it does, it is one of those things, isn't it, where it's just broadened things so much. And it has, as someone who is, you know, sitting in London, very, very, very very far away from you, it is wonderful to be able to do this kind of thing and not have the distance be an issue. And that silent room will be very helpful when you have other people coming in. So initially I was really like, oh my God, I can't do this via Zoom. I need to see the person I need to hear, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the first couple of times I've got to say were really challenging, but now I love it. And it really has. I mean, you know, there's so much devastation with COVID, but there are the positives as well. And it's nice to be able to, um, you know, I mean, every day I'm talking to somebody from the UK or the US or France or whatever. So we're feeling very lucky. And I think our listeners are sports. Which is really nice. Okay, I'm going to introduce you. Um, Christina grew up between London and Glasgow. She studied law at the University of Cambridge and graduated with a first in 2015. So you're a smarty pants. Christina. <laughs> Christina works as a corporate litigation lawyer in London, yes. Her debut novel, The End of Men, is being called by the Sunday Times style as the most buzzed about fiction for 21. The novel is about a global virus that kills only men. It is being published in 15 languages and the film rights have sold to a major Hollywood studio. Oh, my goodness. Are you 30 yet? (laughs) (laughs) I just turned 28 and also that it still feels quite remarkable hearing it like it's been published in languages and it's had these lovely things spoken about it It just it still feels very surreal (laughs) having someone read that out Um, it is is really exciting it's going to be our book of the week so we're super excited Um, so tell me tell me about growing up tell me about why is it you became a lawyer why is it you didn't start I mean you're only 28 but you know was it when you were growing up that you thought you wanted to be a writer or you wanted to be a lawyer or you wanted to be whatever So I always loved reading and will not be the first author to say that, if I'm an author that didn't say that, and just just constantly read and really kind of had this whole imaginary life that I think maybe is often the beginning of writers. But I didn't really think about writing per se. I actually trained to be a classical harpist, which is quite a niche thing to do as a child. And I trained like really seriously in that all the way through my childhood, my teenagers. So I kind of, that's what I wanted to do. I was going to be a musician and I got very used to practicing every night, which is definitely kind of discipline that's helped in like adulthood writing. Um, and then when I was 16, I kind of thought, no, I don't think, I don't actually think that's the life I want to live. I think I want to go and do something more academic. So I kind of pivoted and thought I'm going to become a lawyer and I'm going to write. And 
pretty much have, have done that. So I then kind of went to, I went to Cambridge, I studied law and I loved it. I really loved the academic side of it. I consistently was writing the beginnings of novels. And I would say this to people where it takes, I think, quite a lot of false starts to get there. You know, it's a very well, rare person. Well, what call it practice? Precisely. And I think people often are maybe disappointed in themselves and they've only managed to write the first chapter or, you know, they, they've man- never managed to finish a novel. And I always kind of say to people, that's okay. That's, that's just the beginning. You have to do that to kind of get out of your system. So I was always like right, trying to write novels, writing the beginnings of novels. And then when I started, I started working as a lawyer when I was 23 and for the first time kind of wasn't studying and had a bit more bandwidth to kind of, you know, I had like a nine to five job Monday through Friday, or well, maybe not quite a nine to five, but a Monday through Friday job. And I started writing my first novel, which didn't go anywhere. And I wrote that from the age of 23 to 25. And then I wrote The End of Men, started writing The End of Men when I was 25. And it's been kind of a few, a few mad years of writing it, getting an agent, and here we are. So it was kind of, I think there was always something creative in my life, even if I didn't, I wasn't, you know, four years old going, I want to be a writer. But to me, the music and the writing feel quite connected, I think. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, There's an Australian author called Emma Visic. You should look her up. She's a great crime writer. And she's a musician as well. And she likens writing to music quite a lot. I mean, I think that there is a huge similarity. And particularly when you read a well-written book, it's like listening to a good piece of music, isn't it? It has all the elements, you know, it has the craft, it has the magic, uh, the creativity creativity, if you like. So you've rushed through your life in a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's because you probably think it's pretty normal. But there is there are some huge achievements here. I mean, learning to play a musical instrument, particularly the harp, can't have been easy. So you are a person that once you start something, you stick to it, right? Yes, I would say that. And and I yeah. don't talk about things until I've done them. That's something that I always got, you know, I I I think it's really important if I say I'm going to do something to myself, I commit to it, I make a plan. I'm a big planner. I love a list and I, and I do commit to doing it and I'm quite disciplined. And then I like to talk about things once they're done, but I always make that distinction because I think music's a good example of that. You know, you can't, there's, there's no value to saying to someone, I'm going to be able to play that piece one day. No one cares. It's like, well, can you play it or not? And so, yeah, I am. Yeah, I, I kind of, I suppose I commit to things to myself as opposed to committing to them for other people, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. And if I do want to do something, I do it. Yeah, I'm just thinking about myself. Do you know what I do? If I really want to do something, I tell people because then it makes me do it. Because then there's an expectation that I'm actually going to do it. Because then it's out there. And if I don't do it, then I'm disappointing a lot of people. So yeah. I guess it's slightly different. Okay. I think everyone has different like psychological way of yeah holding themselves accountable and whatever works yeah whatever works absolutely what was it that drew you to studying law why law I'm a big cliche that my parents are both lawyers um so that was partly it my 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 mum studied law and she was a legal academic she's like a law professor and my dad is a solicitor and they both really love it and you know always did and found it really interesting so I grew up at a dinner table where law was constantly being discussed so it wasn't a very original choice of career for me, but I just always found it really interesting. And, and law is is really, it's problem solving, really. It's kind of intellectual problem solving. And I think you can actually really see that partly in the end of men in that a lot of speculative fiction is figuring out intellectual problems. Like what if you did X, what would then happen to Y? And I've just always really enjoyed that. It really suits my brain. I guess when you grow up in a family in that environment, you either go one way or the other. You really reject it or you really embrace it. Did you embrace it from early on? Um, did you know from early I did. On? Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't necessarily think kind of I'm gonna be a lawyer, but I mean I always liked essay subjects at school. I did debating. I'm not making myself sound 
at all cool but um I was very academic and bookish and I so I kind of think it was always kind of in the cards but my parents were very conscious of not ever pressurizing I have two siblings not pressurizing any of us to do what they wanted my parents kind of had like chosen to do what they wanted to do and were like look if you want to do law it's great but it's really hard work if you enjoy it fab but if you don't for god's sake do something else so it was really left it was really left to me to do whatever I wanted and I kind of chose of my own accord um yeah, I never regretted it. So, and so the writing, the creative writing, kind of never left you. Were you scribbling and writing as you were studying? Were you doing that? I was, but I have to say that I found I found it really difficult actually to have the bandwidth to write when I was studying. And I find it interesting because sometimes I think people say the opposite, but they really struggle to fit it around a job. Whereas when they were at uni, they wrote a lot. Whereas maybe it's partly because law is a really intense degree and at Cambridge it's, and even at Cambridge, which is an intense uni, law is one of the more intense (laughs) degrees. So there really just wasn't a lot of time between going out and having a nice time with friends and making the most of your uni experience and studying really hard. So I would, I would often kind of binge read and write in the summers. Like I would kind of tell myself, right, I'm just going to get through my exams that like finish at the end of May. And then I would like binge like a whole fantasy series and read nonstop for like two weeks and try and write the beginning of a novel. So I I was kind of at that age, like 19, 20, 21, but not consistently. Like I didn't have momentum with it um, until I stopped studying. Mm. So then tell me where you, when you decided and why you decided to start applying yourself to writing another book. Was it that you thought, okay, now I've got the time, now I've got the bandwidth, I've got the time, I've got an idea. Is that how it came about? Or you decided I'm going to write something and I've got to think of something. How did that process happen? So I actually started writing historical romance, which I'm aware that with what the end of men is in terms of it being kind of feminist speculative, you might go, well, how did that happen? Uh, like slight plot twist. But I really love, I really love historical romance. I'm a huge Julia Quinn fan and have been since my early teens. And I knew, I, I knew that I wanted to write a novel. I was 23. I was starting work. So it was this kind of like, okay, I have the bandwidth. I want to do it. I want to become a novelist. I have to write a novel and finish one. And I'd had, had an idea for a historical romance novel for quite a while. And I think that with genre fiction, if you've read a lot of it, as I have, there's a sense of you kind of know what the deal is. You know, you have a sense of the structure of the book. So it feels a bit less daunting, which is not to say that it's easier, I should point out. Writing good romance crime thrillers is really hard. Oh, yeah. But I, I kind of thought, I know what the confines of this are and how to build a book out of this. So I gave myself two years. I said, right, I've got a two-year training contract, which is what you do as a lawyer to qualify. I'll give myself two years to write this novel. So it was kind of, a, it was it was a nice confluence of things. I thought that would be a really nice thing to write. I had a, an, an idea within that genre. I had the bandwidth. The timing kind of worked. It was kind of all of those things coming together. That's kind of how I ended up writing that first novel. Um, it just right. the timing will fit. So what happened with the first novel? It didn't go anywhere, which is totally fine. And I'm very, very grateful that that happened. But it, what was interesting about it was I had the idea at the end of it while I was writing it. So I kind of knew, so I... I started writing that in what, October, goodness me, October 2016. And then I had the idea of the NMN in early 2018. And I had this thing of like this very spooky, the NMN is it. Like I immediately knew what the title was going to be. I immediately had the idea. I knew what the book was going to be. And just, I, I, I know described it as being a bit spooky and just going, that's it. Like that's the one that's going to get me an agent. It's going to get published. That's the idea. 
but I really wanted to have finished a novel. I was so conscious of how easy it is to like I have unfinished go, yeah. projects. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the first novel because it is a big project. Like, you know, you said you started mm. writing a novel and you finished it. It's not easy, is it? What are you writing? 90,000 words? Yeah. Tell me about that from start to finish. I mean, and again, when you have to let it go and think, okay, that's no good, I'll start again. That is, to me, that is a head spin. It's yeah, I think I just was so determined to finish it. Like I'd ha- I had so many first chapters. There's a really good quote, which I think is Julia Quinn. And if I'm misappropriating it, whatever, it's someone else, sorry. But I think it's her. And she says, there's too many first chapters in the world to finish the damn book. And I kind of had that like clarion call in my head. I've written so many first chapters. Like I want to finish a book. And I kind of, I, I very quickly accepted that it might not be the first one. I remember thinking that I'd seen in an interview with Jojo Moyes, that she'd had, I think, three or four manuscripts that hadn't sold before she got published. And I thought, if someone as amazing as Jojo Moyes, you know, he took a few manuscripts to get published. There is no shame in it taking me a few manuscripts, but I have to actually, you know, finish a book for it to even have a shot. I think also giving myself the time, you know, saying, look, it's probably going to take two years and that's okay. And just chipping away at it and chipping away at it. I lost the plot both on a kind of literary and kind of emotional point with it at times and went okay throwing that out don't know what's going on there like definitely kind of it went through all kinds of changes over the two years but I just I just had a real determination to finish it to like give myself a shot because you can't submit to agents you can't really do anything unless the novel you know is done and I always say to people as well if you write 500 words a day for about six months you will have a novel now, clearly it's more difficult than that. But I think often you, it's so easy to see the like 90,000 word thing and just go, oh my God, it's so many words. But if you break it down into that daily component part, that feels to me anyway, like relatively manageable. Do you I write at night? I do. You write after time, a day's work. I'm not a morning person at all. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never written in the morning. It's really not my vibe. So like day, day-to-day writing, that's a manageable amount. Just, I just needed it to be done. I needed it to be finished. And I should be out, I did query it to like, I think I sent it to six or seven agents and I got like one really nice email and one full manuscript request, which might not seem like a lot and it didn't get me an agent. It didn't get it sold, but it was enough that I thought, okay, I'm not completely barking up the wrong tree here. You know, like the nice email said, look, you're a good writer. Like, I'm not going to sign it. This just isn't for me, but like, well done. It's nice executed. And that, right, when you're beginning, you know, and you're starting out, that small amount of encouragement can actually feel incredibly significant. Absolutely. Hey, listen, I'm just going back to morning night person. Lucky you're a night person and lucky I'm a morning person. Because it's 8 8 a.m. here and what, 9 p.m. over there? Um, I would choose 9 p.m. over 8 a.m. for for an interview any time, (laughs) any day of the week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So then you put that aside and you accept the fact that after two years of writing that you're going to keep going. Can I tell you too, I've spoken to so many authors and I'm so lucky I get to speak to so many people, but one of the authors I spoke to, Josephine Moon, I think her name was, she got 100 rejections before she got published, 100 and she kept going and she kept going. So there's not a clear path. You know, there is such a clear path to being a lawyer. There is such a clear path to being a doctor. There's such a clear path to being a nurse. There's a teacher, whatever. But when it comes to writing, it's not clear, is it? No, and I'm, I'm also conscious of not making, you know, I have had a pretty easy path of it. And I am really conscious of that, you know, one manuscript that, you know, took me two years and didn't sell, but I already had the next idea and that happened quite quickly. Like I've, I suppose I'm I'm always, I'm conscious of my good fortune in that it can be a really long and difficult path and there's no guarantee. And that's the hardest thing I think is when you're writing a novel before you have an agent, you're going, what if I'm just wasting my time? Exactly. What what if no one ever wants to read the thing? That's the big fear I think when you're writing at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the end of men and tell me how it came to be published. The writing process took two years as well. No, it was quicker. It was it was much quicker. So I had the idea early 2018 and thought, that's a really good idea. I want to read that book, which I think is the, the best test. It's like, I can't think of a book that has that idea. Like, a world, what does the world look like without men in a kind of speculative, hyper-realistic way in kind of today's world? Um, and so I kind of sat on it as I finished the first novel and kept thinking about it and jotting down ideas. And then I started writing it on the 1st of September, 2018. Remember that very well. Um, and I wrote my first draft in about nine months. It took me until June, 2019. So the book explores, it's set between 2025 and 2031. And there's this virus that only kills men, women are immune, and it kills 90% of the world's male population. So you have people, you kind of follow a number of different characters. Some of them are, for example, Dr. Amanda McLean is a doctor in Glasgow who treats patient zero. She immediately kind of recognises what that this is something big, this is something new, and she's trying to keep her son's safe. She's trying to kind of warn people. Um, you've got a virologist who's trying to create a vaccine. You've got a sociologist in London who's trying to tell the stories of the plague and also kind of keep her husband and son safe. So you've got these, and you've got other characters as well that you follow the story through. So in the one hand, it's kind of a thriller in that it's quite intense, I'm told, in terms of, you know, are people going to be okay? Are these people going to be safe? But then also there's the the kind of wider society exploration of well, what actually does happen if the majority of men die and society has to be rebuilt. So the writing process was a lot of fun. There's a lot of world building and also quite emotional as you kind of think through those stories of of loss and resilience and quite a lot of difficulty for characters. But it was quite quick. It was a lot quicker than the than the first book. And it was pre-COVID. It was all pre it was all pre-COVID, which is what feels so completely bizarre now. You know, the book, the first draft was it was nine months till about summer 2019. And then I rewrote it with my agent in autumn 2019 and then we sold it in January 2020. And it and then everything went completely nuts. It, it does feel completely bizarre and in some ways awful that this just this worldwide thing has happened that no one could have ever really anticipated. Yeah, it wasn't expected. Did you see a lot of similarity and a lot of truths in the book and how actually COVID rolled out? 
What was your research yes. around viruses? How did you research it? So in the, in the draft of the book that we sold, I had the pandemic starting with a pangolin and then we had to take it out because people would be like, she's stolen that from her life and I didn't. That like that was in the draft pre-everything. And that's partly because I, so I did, I did, basically I researched using the internet. I, I researched the transmission of basically how, how do viruses come to be? And it tends to basically be animals. Pangolins are the world's most trafficked animal, which is why when I was doing research, it kind of said it's there's a pretty decent chance that actually a pangolin would cause a, pa- a pandemic. How do viruses then end up tra- being transmitted to humans? Like, what's the difference between something like Ebola, which is incredibly lethal, but doesn't ever kind of turn into a pandemic that affects billions of people? What's the difference between that, for example, and something like you know a, what I've invented, what I invented, which was you know a virus actually could potentially transmit to humans? But I just did all of that research online kind of using the British Medical Journal was quite good and there's there's a lot of content online I just kind of research specific questions and and mm. try to make it as scientifically accurate as possible. Mm. So tell me how it was so you you had finished your book did you approach the same people because you didn't have an agent then did you? No no, no. and it, it was it was different with the first book because I was already when I was querying the first book I was already writing End of Man I kind of knew that Endermed was both a better idea, going to be a better book, and also was probably the book that I really wanted to write. Like I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to write historical romance forever. And so they would t- happily, they were kind of totally different agents. I only submitted to, I think, six or seven agents in the f- with, for the first book, whereas I made a spreadsheet for the end of men when I was querying it. I went full, like, intense person on it. I, I basically made a list of, like, every literary agency in the UK, made an A-list and a B-list, my A-list was my first choice agents. And had I been rejected by all of them, my plan was to kind of get the book professionally edited to like pay, you know, an editor to give me comments and I would have rewritten it. Happily, I didn't have to do that. But I did query 20 agents, which is quite a lot. And I got offers and happily got an offer from my first choice agent who is who is now my agent. So I was very lucky. It was a very smooth process. It was very quick. I, I definitely got lucky. I don't think I could have coped with the weight. Mm. Of you didn't just get worth. lucky. It's it's the story. <laughs> it is the story. And this is, I mean, authors often say that to me, you know, and you knew it yourself. You knew the first book wasn't the story and you mm. knew that the second book is the story. And it's not luck because uh, it, readers are about story and you can't fool a reader and that's what you've done here. That's you've really true. taken them on a journey that that they can really buy into, I think you know, that they can really own it, that they can really believe it. Because one of the things that I have with this genre, and I hear a lot of our readers say to me, you know, I didn't believe it. I didn't buy into it. It didn't get me over the line. But that's not true of the end of men. Now, there's a lot of controversy around the subject here. And I know that it's just out. The book is just out. But talk to me about the subjects that you're going to be faced with, I guess, um, in terms of review and in terms of interview, the subject of a world without men. So one of the interesting things about it is that I actually don't think it's, I think anyone who reads the book, it's not as controversial once you read the book basically, because, you know, and I've not had a single person read the book and then say, wow, like this is misandry. I've actually only ever had people, like male readers go, wow, this is not necessarily what I expected, but really interesting and emotional nuance. And I think the key thing is that the book is not in any way a book about hating men at all you know right from the get-go you have female characters trying to keep 
keep men safe. And it, and it is an exploration yeah. of what I think the world actually would look like if 90% of the world's men died. It's not a kind of utopian fantasy. And there's a lot of real, you know, bereavement and loss. Like what happens if emotionally families are broken apart and you have this kind of widespread grief and then you have to kind of cope and move on from that and, and grieve from that. So in that sense, I suppose, even though the title is quite spicy, <laughs> so it's a memorable title, The End of Men. Um, and it is, you know, fact, factually the book is about, you know, in some ways the end of uh, you know of men if you have such a you know a decrease in the population i actually don't think it is as controversial once you once you read it that's my take on it anyway no i agree with you um, absolutely but i just think that there might be that conversation out there but mm, also, for sure i mean what you get from it is the empowering of women yeah and it's the one saving the day <laughs> yeah and i'm i'm very optimistic both about kind of humanity and you can really I think you can see that in the book you know I really believe that people are fundamentally good and clever and resilient and hopeful and I also think that women are remarkable and I think that it's really fun to explore what the world looks like if you know kind of structural inequality is quite quickly dissolved and in that sense yeah you get to see women doing all kinds of cool stuff that they don't necessarily get to do right now because by you know by kind of by necessity women are suddenly in the majority of leadership positions and polit- you know the majority of politicians and, and the majority of everyone. That was really fun to write. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about um, the careers you have now. So are you still practising law? Still, working? I am, yeah. So I'm still still a full-time corporate litigation lawyer and also still pretty much a full-time writer. So I definitely feel quite busy, but very happy kind of doing both. I think for me, the work, writing is very solitary. It, the characters feel like real people to you in the way that when you read a book, it's really immersive. But there, you, it, and I, I don't even mind the time spent alone. The thing I actually think that's hard about writing, especially as I kind of go on and I'm trying to write more books, is that when you have a problem, you can't actually really get anyone to solve it for you. You have your agent, you have editors, that's fine. But fundamentally, you have to write the book. There is no one else that can sit down and do it for you. And that's quite difficult. You know, you just have to write the 1900, you know, 100,000 words and keep doing it yourself. Whereas my work as a lawyer is so much more about teamwork. You know, I, always, I work in teams and if I'm having a difficult day or someone else is having a difficult day, I can say, can you take this off my plate? Can you do that, please? I don't know what to do. Let me help you. That, that to me is like kind of really like feeds my soul as odd as it probably sounds like having a lawyer say that her work, you know, is really <laughs> emotionally nourishing, but it is. And so I really like that combination. And then I kind of get this like decompressing time in the evenings where I write and I'm on my own and it kind of works. So I'm still doing both. I really enjoy doing both. I have no plans to change anything, but it is it is a lot hours wise, definitely. I spend a lot of time. What has working. been the reaction of your co-workers and your family? I mean, he, you know, it's not just a book that's been published. It's been a book that is being talked about. It's already published in 15 language. You've got a Hollywood studio contract. It is quite phenomenal for a debut fiction to have that reaction, that success so initially. And it's wonderful. And the book is so deserving. But how is it that, well, one, I want to know if you're sitting someone next to someone at a dinner party are you going to say I'm an author or I'm a lawyer that's the first question so that and that actually the answer to that question has changed I think over the last year or yeah. so I think as soon as the book sold I, before that I never talked about writing until the book sold like I really I would have just been like I'm a lawyer I wouldn't have been really talked about it once the book sold I started going I'm a lawyer and an author and then I think as of about a year ago I I say I'm an author and a lawyer and that just feels to me like the right order to, yeah. to kind of go in so yeah, I'm an author and a lawyer is how I would say it now. And how um, have your um, co-workers and friends and family reacted? They've been so, so, so supportive. I've been very, 
very just thrilled to be kind of surrounded by people that are really happy for me. Um, I think one thing that's quite fun for me, uh, partly as someone who likes telling stories, is that there was this real like plot twist moment because I just didn't talk about it. Like literally the only people that knew I wrote at all were my mum and my two best friends. (laughs) So I I ended up, The End of Men was longlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize when uh, in spring 2019, kind of I think April. And I thought, no, I'm really like, I'm really proud of this. Like I've got quite a lot of the novel now and it's, you know, that's cool. Like I'm really thrilled that I belong to this prize. It's a big deal. And I thought I'm going to tell people that I write. And I put it on my Instagram and I told all my friends and I did have so many friends going, what do you mean you write a novel? Like what, <laughs> what do you talk about? What do you mean you've been writing like novels for like years? What, where did this come from? And they were so surprised. It was quite fun surprising people. And yeah, and I told, I told my colleagues and my kind of work, everyone at work when I, t- I think I mentioned it when I got an agent I thought mm, the book might sell now so I'm going to tell you that I've got an agent and then I told them when the book sold and everyone was just thrilled and really happy for me it's yeah. been yeah it's a really exciting thing and you mentioned that you were starting to write your next book is that right yes um I have a first draft so wow. that has been kind of one of my <laughs> lockdown we've been in lockdown in the UK for quite a while so yeah. I kind of thought right but I can't go anywhere and I can't do anything <laughs> So I'm going to really, I'm just going to lead into to drafting. So yeah, I have the first draft, which is with my agent as we speak. And my first drafts always need a lot of work. I know everyone says that, but my first drafts always, I always find that the only way to figure out what the book is meant to be is by writing the book, which then means that you rewrite the book to kind of get it where it's meant to go. So yeah, I have a I have 100,000 word first draft of the next one. You're a superstar. Christina, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I really do wish you all the best and congratulations on the end of men. Thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure talking to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.